Good evening. Gary James says, when you move the podium up, does that mean it's a shorter sermon? Uh, it's not really a sermon. It's more like a class we've turned it into kind of for a second Sunday share. And the answer to that is yes, Gary. That's, that's true. And so you can be delighted and uh, thrilled about that. Um, we're in the book of Joshua, so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Joshua. This has just been something, uh, I, don't, I don't know, you could call this a survey of the Old Testament a little bit. We've done uh, the Pentateuch now, and for the, we're finally getting beyond, we're getting to the first book of the Bible not written by Moses. Um, Moses had to endure a bunch. He had to uh, prepare these people to get into the promised land, and then he doesn't get to go in himself. He has to stop short. God takes his life, buries him, and uh, Joshua is chosen as his replacement. His name means salvation, and if Jesus would have been an Old Testament figure, his name would have been Joshua in Hebrews, in the Hebrew language. Here's how you know that. Look at this um, first thing. This is what Hebrews 4.8 says in every other version of the Bible except the King James Version at the bottom. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. For some reason, King James says, if Jesus had given them rest, then he would not have come afterward and spoken of another day. And you're like, what? Well, they just took the word that Jesus or God saves and translated it into Jesus because that's his name, right? But, but he, it's obviously Joshua. So I'm just saying it's the same name. And for some reason, King James, I don't, I don't know what they were doing back there. And they were, they were preoccupied with something, and they just translated the, the, the name wrong, even though it's not wrong because it's the same name. Isn't that confusing? Anyway, so those of you King James people, uh, this is one of those things they didn't get right. Anyway, so the book itself um, is, I just, I just made somebody mad, didn't I? I, I should not do that, right? Um, in one breakdown, when you organize the books of the Bible, it's the first of the former prophets. We don't usually talk this way anymore. I don't know if you've ever seen those old, you used to have them on the back of the door of your Bible classroom that had the books of the Bible in their categories, and there were former prophets and latter prophets. I don't think they really do that much anymore, but I remember seeing it, latter prophets, former prophets. The former prophets were Joshua, Samuel, and the kings. It's now in the 12 books of the historical books. That's what you'll see in those now, and it goes all the way through Esther. has nothing to do with anything. I just wanted to show off wisdom, uh, or maybe my memory from seeing those old charts. Anyway, he was born in Egypt. He was from the tribe of Ephraim. First time he appears is in the Battle of Rephidim. You may remember when Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hand so that they'd win. The one fighting was Joshua down there, and that's the first time we, we meet Joshua. Uh, and he lived to be 110 years old. Um, and what's interesting is God almost like affirmed him in the same way he affirmed Moses. So many of the exact same things Moses experienced, Joshua did. Can you think of any of them? What are the things that take your shoes off? Exactly right. They both had to take their shoes off on the holy ground. So... Uh, that, that's one of them. Anybody, think of anybody else? Anything else? Part of a body, a body of water. Went through the body of water on dry ground. Both of them sent out spies. Um, and even Aaron, I'm Aaron, Joshua held a rod. Uh, so he did that too. He gave a farewell speech 
just like Moses did. So there's a lot of things. It's like, it's like God was confirming Joshua in the minds of people by giving him the same experiences, and he was with him in the same way. Before we get to the three main things about the book, I'm going to share, I, I couldn't come up with one memory verse. There's two memory verses that mean a lot to me out of Joshua, and my guess is one, if not both of these, are somewhere in your house on your wall. That's what I'm going to guess. Somewhere, if you're a real Bible believer, right, the, one of these two verses at least is on your wall. Both of these are in my house. Because one of these is like my daughter, is, we took her back to Harding yesterday, she is Miss Anxiety, right? And so her verse is Joshua 1.9. I couldn't let Joshua go by without saying this verse. And this is a memory verse you shouldn't feel forced to remember. This is a memory verse you should be compelled to put in your heart because it's an amazing truth. In that first chapter of Joshua, God is coming to Joshua and affirming him big time. I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. So you just do what I tell you. You just follow what I tell you, and you are going to succeed. And that's the word he says, succeed, all the way through the first nine or ten verses. But he gets to this, have I not commanded you? Am I not the one commanding you? Be strong, courageous, do not be frightened, the most common repeated command in all of scripture do not fear you've probably heard this it it appears 365 times in the bible one for every day you've heard that i don't know if it was that's why god did it that many times I'm just saying it appears. do not be frightened do not be dismayed and here's the line you need to remember for your lord your god the lord your god is with you wherever you go that's a great verse that's a great verse. And here's the thing. It's not for optimists. Hey, things are going to work out. It's not for people. Hey, we've got, we've got great things. You've got great resources. That's not why you don't fear. What's the reason why you don't fear? Because God is with you wherever you go. It's not about your resources and your bank account and your optimism. It's the fact that God is with you. So that's a great memory verse. I think everybody puts, should put Joshua 1.9 in their heart. We've got, I don't know, for years ago, in the closet where Abby, at least where she used to get dressed and put makeup on, she, there's a mirror and it's got this written, I don't know what she wrote it, in a marker or something, and it's written over the top of it. So when she looks in the mirror, she sees Joshua 1.9. So that's where it's in our, in our house. So maybe, maybe, so, you know, that's, that, that's worth coming up the hill on Sunday night for, isn't it? Just to be reminded of that, right? Uh, but the other is at the other end of the book, the other memory verse, and it comes in the first value of Joshua, in my opinion. The first thing, it's a very um, Moses-like charge that Joshua gives the people. Um, and it's, uh, the first thing about Joshua is this, um, the decision is yours. The choice is yours. So many times in the scripture, a significant character says this. Now, we ended Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 30 with Moses saying, I set before you today life, death, prosperity, and cursing. I set it before you. You do what God says, life and prosperity. You forsake what God says, death and curse. You choose. And he just kind of drops the mic and walks away, right? Joshua's going to do the same thing. But so many Bible characters do this. Jesus, how does he do this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? We do it this way. Wise man built his house upon the rock. Okay, so there's your choice. You can build your house on a rock. But the foolish man built his house upon the... Those are your two choices. 
You build your, and, 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 and what, when he said, so many people that will say about the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll talk about here when uh, I do a Bible class here later in the fall, um, people will argue, did Jesus really expect us to do the Sermon on the Mount? Did he really expect us to obey it? Because that's impossible. But the invitation is, when he gives that wise man, he says, the people who hear and do what I say, that's the rock. The people who hear but don't do what I say, that's the sand. Choice is yours. You've all heard it. Now the thing is, are you going to do it or not? These Bible characters do this. And by the way, like uh, the, the wisdom writer said the same thing. Some of you may have memorized the first psalm. Blessed is a man who walketh not in the counsel of the godly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bring forth his fruit in season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They're like chaff which a wind driveth away. You throw them up in the wind and they blow away. You've got the godly and you've got the ungodly. And the psalmist is saying, if you'll cooperate with me, the psalmist says in the Psalms, if you'll cooperate and be the righteous man, you'll be this. And if you don't cooperate and be the righteous man, you'll be this. The choice is yours. But for Joshua, he says it different. And this is the other one that's probably in your house somewhere, not the whole thing. The whole thing is really a long verse, and a lot of it we don't know really kind of what he said, but we know the end of it, right? But as for me... In my house, we will serve the Lord. How many of you have this somewhere framed in your house? Surely, come on. Come on. You pagans. What is wrong with you people? It's supposed to be, it's like a verse. You've got to have this in your wall. Now, here's, here's the thing about Joshua. It's so interesting. Um, he's one of the two that were over 20. Now, I said this last time that only two made Th Those under 20... There was a lot of them that saw some of the wilderness that got to be in the promised land because they were under 20. That's how they counted. But the ones who were in the full thing. So jo here's the thing about Joshua. He was probably, probably around 40 by the time he left uh, uh, Egypt. So he experienced the Egypt slavery for a long time, significant amount of time. He experienced the wilderness, and he experienced the promised land. He got it all. He saw it all. And here's the interesting thing. He's one of them that tells us that when they were in Egypt, they were serving some of these Egyptian gods. While Israel was in slavery, they were participating in some Egyptian worship. Now, they shouldn't have been, but they were. And he remembers this. That's why he says, if it's evil in your eyes, if it's not the right thing in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Make a choice. Nail your foot to the floor and decide. Now, he, he, he reviews with them all the choices they have seen and participated in over the years. He says this, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river. What is he talking about? What's he talking about back beyond the river? What river? All the way back there in Egypt, your forefather, the, the river, the, the, the gods of the Egyptians, the, do you all remember that? Do you all remember that? Surely you remember that. No, you don't remember that. You weren't there, but I was. 
Go ahead. If you want to go back and revert back to your history and go back to that forefather, if you want, or, he says, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. If you want to choose one of the gods of the land uh, that we're going into right now that you've seen, that we've whipped these people, right? By this time, they've whipped the people. But their gods were present. You want to choose one of them? Go ahead. You choose. I lay before you a buffet, he says. You got the Egyptian gods, you got the Amorites, you got the Canaanites and the Perizzites and Hittites and all the other ites in the land. And then you got God, and it's your choice. You choose. But as for me, we'll serve the Lord. And so the first big thing about Joshua I love, this is the second memory verse, but the first big thing is you make a choice. God is a pro choice God. He leaves it to you. But remember this. You will pay the consequences of the choice you make. Don't come crying to him when you make a wrong choice and the consequences come. He's just saying, hey, I'm going to give you full choice to make your decision. So he's like, Jesus is this way. Moses was like this. The psalmist was like this. So the the great writers of scripture are like this. And this is why we keep the covenant. Second thing I would say about Joshua that I love, and this is more, this is significant politically today. And also I was listening to Tony Evans this morning. I'm usually a fan of his, but he was going into this. Uh, You know, uh, Jesus is going to come and he's going to reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. And we got to keep Jerusalem safe and protected so he can he can do all this. I'm like, really? Think, I think he's just going to whip us all and he's going to take us all home, right? I don't think there's going to be all this stuff. But there's politicians today that really want to protect Israel. We've got to protect Israel so that when Jesus comes back, he can take the And I'm thinking, do you really think when Jesus comes back, he needs our help? Really? You think he needs American legislators to keep Jerusalem clean and safe you really think he needs us i kind of think if jesus wants to whip us all he'll whip us all right but here's what i think is more important god laid out you remember calling abraham and he made those promises and uh we think god's got to keep his promise like he hasn't kept here's what he says in joshua chapter 21 verse 43 thus the lord gave to israel all the land he swore to give to their fathers. Is there anything he's left out of that? All the land he swore to give them. The promise he made to them, he's given it to them. And they took possession of it. They settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. The Lord had given them uh, all their enemies into their, into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Are there still promises to Israel God needs to pay up on? Not one, we don't really need to help them out. And this wasn't fulfilled in 1948 when America made sure that Israel had property. It, it wasn't, that, this isn't looking back that far. This is going all the way back to Joshua and says, God has paid it off, paid in full exactly. He says it again. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed from you off this good land that the Lord God has given you. God has kept his promises. So whatever happens after this, and you know what happens after this, right? They lose it. But whatever happens after this, God has kept his promise.
And he all, as Jared, Gary is saying, he always does and he always will. And that's not the only promise. There's promises all over. I'm gonna, you remember when he met that strange commander of the army of the Lord in chapter 5? And God's going God's, God's to go before you. He is, it's really the hornet. He's the hornet going into the land, taking the people for. He promises to do that, and he did. He's the divine warrior. I think that is so important because there's so many people think that there's still some promises to Israel that God needs to pay up on. And Joshua makes it very clear. He kept every single one of them this early in their history. And so when he makes you a promise, and when he makes us a promise, it's an absolute thing you can build your entire life on. Third thing, timeless lessons from some of the most colorful characters. I just couldn't put this in one thing except throw their names in there. Now let me, let me give you a name and see if you know what the lesson is. Uh, and in fact, I don't know that I put it in. I'm going to be ready to read it if not. Um, Achan. Anybody remember? Yeah, I did. Chapter 7, verse 21. It is, like, it is like the anatomy of sin, right? You remember, uh, you take the, the city of Jericho, you take it all. It's devoted to me. This is called the ban. It's the ban, which means everything is to be destroyed. We're going to talk about that in a minute because it's a big hang-up for a lot of people. But in uh, Jericho, everything belongs to me. Don't you take anything. And then they go to Ai. You remember this? A little bitty town. After they took Memphis, then they had trouble with Bay. And everybody's like, what? How can you have trouble with Bay when you whoop Memphis? That doesn't make much sense. And it was because of Achan. And here's the analogy that he says, and it's all in one verse, chapter 7, verse 21. It says, Achan said, when I went through the stuff, I saw a Babylonian robe and a wedge of gold. I coveted it, and I took it. And that's exactly how sin happens, isn't it? It's a great lesson for young people. It's a great lesson for all of us. That's how it happens. You see something, it gets in your imagination, and you covet it. It gets in your heart, and you want it, and then you take it. Now, where did the sin start? Where does the sin start? There's two, ten, there's two of the Ten Commandments broken right here. The last one is I took, he stole from God because it belonged to God. But before he did that, he broke number 10. You wanted it so bad you couldn't take your mind off it. Seeing it's not sin, it just introduces the temptation. But boy, when you see it, you start setting your heart upon it and you covet and there's your sin. It's a great lesson for anybody. So that's Achan. Second lesson, uh, a colorful character that we don't often think about is Rahab. Rahab. Um, and you know, she's always called the prostitute. Even after she is incorporated into Israel and becomes the holy woman, becomes an, uh, one of the ancestors to Jesus, and becomes a person of faith in James chapter 2, still we keep the label on her. It seems wrong. Do you think God really forgets your sin? Do you think God really forgets your sin? No, he doesn't forget it. He never brings it up and holds it against you. How do you know he never gets it? Because he brings it up all the way through the rest of Scripture. It's, it's for others to learn. And so here's Rahab, who's got this past, apparently. But here's what, here's what she says, and this is what I point out from James chapter 2. She says, before the men lay down, the two spies that she hid in her house, she 
came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land. I know it. I know it's yours. You've got the deed. And the fear of you has fallen upon all of us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We've heard, we have heard, this is a plural, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is the God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. One of the great statements of faith from the mouth of an outsider, but she's not an outsider for very long, she's incorporated to Israel. And by the way, as, God, as God's people marched through, outsiders were often incorporated into God's people. They were always welcomed if they would embrace the faith. Now the interesting thing is, she says everybody's afraid of you. But not everybody helps them. And not everybody believes in them enough to join them. They fight against them. And here's the interesting, you remember when the spies were first sent out? And they came back and said, all the people of the land think we're grasshoppers. Rahab says that ain't true. Do you know that one of these, these things she mentions, the Red Sea, how long ago was it that the Red Sea parting happened at the point of Joshua? Forty years when you guys came through the Red Sea, we heard about it and we were terrified. They weren't in the land thinking we're going to whip the, the Israelites. They were terrified for when they came. But the Israelites didn't know that. And they thought we aren't big enough to take them. God had put the fear of himself in the people of Israel. And they could have taken them back there in numbers. Instead, they wandered for 40 years. And so here, when they're back in there 40 years later... She, not them, she's reminding them of their history. We believe your history more than you do. Isn't that crazy? The people of the world know our story better than we do? Believe our story more than we do? Rahab's a great character. While you believe all this stuff, you've got to act on it. Here's a third character, which for you older people, you need to really like this story, this character. Caleb. He was the other guy. Remember the two guys that came back with good reports? I love what he says. Listen, the people of Judah came to Joshua, Gilgal, and Caleb. This is now, they've taken the promised land, right? They've gotten there. And Caleb remembers the real estate God promised to give him 40 years ago. His memory hasn't faded at all. Now listen to what he says. Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh to Barnea to spy out the land. I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I holy, and this word holy, and I don't mean H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, in a lot of versions, it will say wholeheartedly. This word is used of Caleb more than anybody else in Scripture. Wholehearted. You want to know what wholehearted is? It's Caleb. Now keep going. And Moses swore that day, surely the land on which your foot is trodden, the land that, that Caleb walked on to spy out the land, he wanted and God promised it to him 40 years before. That land will be inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. 
And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke the word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. Now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was when I was 40. Gary, is that true? No. Okay, I knew that. I knew that. How do you explain an 85-year-old man who says, I'm every bit as strong as I was 45 years ago. That's God blessing him, making sure that that 40 years he has to endure is paid off in his faithfulness. And here's the crazy thing. So give me this hill country. Give me this land like God promised. And you heard on that day how the Anakim were there. These were the giant warriors with great fortified cities, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I'm going to drive them out. An 85-year-old man driving a bunch of giants out of the land. Isn't that an image in your head? Can you see it? Can you see Gary James whipping people? This is amazing. This Caleb character is fascinating. He really believed what he said back there. He really believed it, and he had to just patiently endure the 40 years of whining and complaining, and God says, I'm going to give you your dessert. You're going to get there, and when you get there, I'm going to give you the vitality and strength to, to take it. And he did. What an amazing story. I love that. I think it's worth putting in your head back there. Great character. I think the commander of the Lord's army is another, but we'll just leave it there. But there needs to be one other consideration, and it's a moral question that a lot of people have, and I'll not satisfy you completely with my answer on this. How can God actually command his own people to destroy complete nations of people in Canaan? Spare no one. And the city and all that is within it shall be, here's the word that's the ban, devoted to the Lord for destruction. Everything inside it comes to me which means you kill it, and it comes to me. Only Rahab the prostitute and all other wither in her house, you know, for the, hiding the, the scarlet thread because she hid the messengers whom she was sent. This is called the ban. This appears two or three times in the Old Testament, so it's not like he does it all the time. But I want you to totally annihilate. Now, that's hard, isn't it? How can a loving God do that? Deuteronomy chapter 7, did I put that in here? When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entered. This is Moses way back there, right? Not way back there. It's just wrapping up his experience. You, entering that land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. The ban. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy. How can that be? You shall not intermarry with them. I don't want you marrying with them. This is what he means. Giving your daughters to their sons, taking their daughters for your sons. They would turn away your sons from following me, and they will. 
right? That's why he wants to devote them to them. They'd turn away your sons to serve other gods, and the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly, and thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their ashiram, and burn their carved images with fire. You have got to completely annihilate everything about them so that it doesn't become a snare to you. This is what God explains. And in our more sophisticated, modern, soft-hearted ways, we can't understand a God who does that. And then you have Jesus coming along saying, turn the other cheek. And people will say, I just can't believe in a God like that. And he seems to change. Just a couple of perspectives to offer uh, for explaining it. One is the Old Testament time had God had uh, one literal nation of people who were his own. They were a kingdom of priests that were to teach the world what God is like. And God used this one political nation to do that. Today, God does this through his church, not a political nation. The United States is not the people or nation of God. We are not. The church is the kingdom of God on earth. And it has no boundary it speaks all sorts of language. And so there's not one political group of people who represent the will of God perfectly and communicating it to the world. So remember that. So we have a totally different way. We'll, we'll wrap it up with that when it comes. But here's what you know about this violence, okay? The people of Canaan were so wicked, they were unredeemable. God gave them time. If you remember at Genesis chapter 15, he says to Abraham, he says, I'm going to send you down to Egypt, and you're going to grow and be numerous for 400 years until the time of the wickedness of the Amorites is complete. God's saying, I'm not going to destroy them until they are completely irredeemable, until there is a point of no return. They're so wicked, they will never respond no matter how much patience and grace I have. God is patient. God is loving, but his patience does not last forever. Do you remember the flood? It was so violent that the only choice God had was what? Wipe them out. But he's not going to do it by a flood anymore. So what he told Abraham is, I'm going to use my people to bring a flood on Canaan because they're so wicked they will never change. God, and people say, God couldn't do that. God did do that, and God's going to do it again, isn't he? I know we can't understand hell. And I know it sounds awful, and we in our sophisticated tastes can't understand that. But if you are a holy God, you must have a hell in which to put people who choose not to join you in your holiness. There are no other options. It's just hard for people to accept. Sounds harsh. I don't know how completely God expected them to obliterate. They didn't because these people still remain in the land. There's some that they allow to live, and I don't know why. It doesn't say. Did God actually literally want them to destroy everything, and they just disobey, or did, did they do it the way God wanted? I don't know. That's a little confusing to me. But God is being a God of justice and sending his people. And isn't it true that he sends other people to his own people to do this later on. Now, here's the strange thing, because later on, 
Um, well, in Joshua 11 is where the ban appears in Joshua. Um, and it's called holy war. I call it the ban. That's what most people call it. It just means holy war. Um, but God uses other nations. You may remember the book of Habakkuk where God says, I don't know. I'd be curious to know this. I'm going to ask God one of these days. God is going to punish his own people, and he's going to bring the Babylonians, the wicked Babylonians who are worse than Israel, to punish Israel for their wickedness. You remember this? Now, he tells his own people that. Does he ever tell Canaan, Canaan, does he ever tell Babylon, hey, I want you to do this for me? I don't think so. But he does tell his own people, you are about to be wiped out. You are about to be uprooted and sent to another land by the Babylonians. And I want you to know that while they're having Babylonian spears and shields, it's really me. I'm doing this to you. So can I tell you, if God's people are used to punish wicked people, but if God's people are no better than those wicked people, he will use other people to punish them. God's an equal opportunity justice doer. It reveals how serious God is about sin. We do not, I love what Danny said this morning about sin is serious because, and he's right, I don't think we as human beings know how bad sin is. But the flood should show us, Sodom and Gomorrah should show us, Israel and how they handled the Canaanites should show us, how the Babylonians handled God's people should show us. God, that as, a, as, as casual we are with, with sin, God is absolutely unremittent in his hatred of sin, and he will punish every single sin, either in your payment in hell or Jesus' payment on the cross. One of those two payments is going to be what your sin costs. And I think in Romans chapter 13, I don't think I put this in here on a screen, but I think in Romans chapter 13, God would put, if you recall, we don't seek, we don't seek vengeance. Individual people do not go seek vengeance for the injustice they suffer. Romans chapter 12. We leave vengeance to whom? God. And then he flips over to Romans 13, what we call Romans 13. Paul doesn't flip over a chapter. He's still writing in the same thing. The human governments of the earth are God's appointed servants to carry out justice. Do human governments have a right to look at another government and say, you're so wrong, we're going to punish you. Yes. So war can be just. But can I be honest? I'm a, I'm a just war theorist. I think if you have the right restraint and you have the right reason, you can go to war as one country against another. But I'm almost a pacifist because I don't think our humanity gives us much good judgment in this anymore. I just don't think often that we can do this. For some reason, we only do nations, we only go to war against nations with oil. So, I mean, it just seems weird, right? But I do think God has given them the right to do so. That's not going to answer all the issues about God sending his people in to annihilate people. But it is the biblical answer. And I think the biggest problem we have is that we don't understand God's justice and hatred of sin. That it just can't be casually viewed.
So there you have it. Where I put this in order for the three lessons, I'd say this. God makes and keeps great promises to us. He gives us great lessons in the people and character of faith around us. But in all this, he leaves the choice about whether to serve him or not completely up to us. And that's Joshua. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for your word, grateful for how timely it is, even years after it was written, even years and years after those events happened. Father, we are grateful for the, uh, the fact that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and it can penetrate into our hearts. And we're grateful that it is your word that you give us through your Holy Spirit and it's, and it's able uh, to teach us and correct us and train us in righteousness. And tonight, thank you for our tutor being Joshua and the great lessons that we have a choice. We, we can choose for ourselves, but we will suffer the consequences, good or bad, of the choices we make. We're grateful that you are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, promise-making, promise-keeping God and that we can live our lives on it. And Father, we are reminded of how we can learn from one another and even from faithful uh, figures of the past. And may we always fill our lives with the, the reminder of these things. And may we look around uh, at each other and, and learn and draw faith from one another. Father, gr we're grateful for Joshua and pray that you continue to bless us through him and through each other. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.